0: In your name, amen. Amen. Grab a seat, guys. Well, you know, you know the scene. It's the scene in every movie, at least every good epic movie. Everything is going good in the beginning of the movie, and then everything falls apart in the middle, right? And it just gets so bad, whether it's your romance movie where, you know, they finally get together and then something comes out and it, and it, and it threatens the relationship, or, or whether it's sort of a big cosmic, uh, you know, epic movie where there's war and there's, you know, it, it, there's always this story, this moment in the story arc where everything gets really dark and really hopeless, right? But it's, it's always when it's at its most hopeless it's when it's like the, the, the lowest chance of success, that's when the light pops over the top of the mountain and the hero comes onto the scene, right? How many movies, how many books, how many stories have this at its centerpiece? The hero returns at the last possible minute when it's the most dark, that's when the sun comes up thinking of J.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King, right? It feels like all hope is lost and all of the, the enemies of Mordor have have converged on Gondor. Yes, I sound like a nerd. And, and it's just all hope is lost, right? But then at the last minute, Aragorn, the true king, unites the armies and they win. They overcome. The light pops over the mountain and they're victorious. Where, where did this idea come from? Why do we love it? Why do we keep writing it? Why do we keep... Watching it, even though it's been done so many times, again, why do we keep going back to the theater and watching movies that have the same plot lines over and over again? It's interesting, George Lucas said this about movies or about stories. He said, the story being told in Star Wars is a classic one. Every few hundred years, the story is retold because we have a tendency to do the same things over and over again. He says, I've come to the conclusion that mythology is really a form of archaeological psychology, Mythology gives you a sense of what people believe and what they fear. The reason we keep writing this story over and over again, where there's one, you know, the one who comes and saves, is because we know internally and intrinsically that that is ultimate reality. We know that we need to be saved. We see it getting darker. We see it getting worse in the world. Isn't it getting darker? Isn't it getting worse? Isn't it getting discouraging? We know that we need to be saved. We know that we need to be rescued. The great theologian Ben Affleck once said these words. I I didn't get struck down. Okay. Um, He said, we certainly are in need of heroes. Heroes. In 2017, I believe he said this prior to one of his his movies that he was a a superhero in. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on in the world from natural to man-made disasters. This was pre-COVID, pre-inflation, pre-everything, pre-Ukraine. It's really scary, he says. Part of the appeal of this genre is wish fulfillment. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this, save us from ourselves, save us from the consequences of our actions and save us from people who are evil? Wouldn't that be great, Ben Affleck says. That's why we keep watching Marvel movies, right? That's why we keep watching 5,000 Spider-Man movies. I don't know how many Spider-Man movies they're going to make before it's, it's tapped out, but they just keep doing it, right? We want a hero. We want to be saved. We know we need to be saved. So our text this morning is really the peak of darkness before the light. It's, it's the, 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 the very depths of despair in the cosmos, in the world, before our hero sets foot on the stage, but not only are we going to see darkness reach its climax, we're going to see light break through it in the form of the Son of Man coming in the clouds in glory, which is what we are all waiting for. You know, Christ comes twice into this world. He has two advents. Advent is the word we use to describe his coming. His first advent is when? Come on. Christmas time, right? OK, His first advent is Christmas time. God, the Father sent the Son, He took on human flesh, became a baby, was born in a manger, and that's his first coming. He grew up, spent 33 years um, growing and, and working towards the cross, three years of ministry. That was his first coming, but that is not his only coming, right? The gospel's only good news if Jesus comes twice. He came once to save us from sin's power and saves penalty he 's coming again to save us from sins presence okay if he doesn't come again we're not really saved we may be saved from sin's penalty but sin's power and presence are still working in this world we need Jesus to come again and at the nucleus of the message of the gospel we not only find Jesus dying for sin we find Jesus coming back on the clouds in power to deal with evil forever isn't that great news and Jesus wanted to prepare his guys for this reality. He wanted it to become center in their theology and the way that they would teach the word to the subsequent generations. The word that theologians use is called the parousia. It is the return of Christ, the return of the king, the very idea that J.R. Tolkien was using, I believe, when he wrote the book, The Return of the King. Our king is coming back. He returns. I just want to clear the air. If there's loud kids, we love them, and it's okay. We knew it was going to be loud. That's what microphones are for, okay? So don't feel bad, mom, dad, whoever. It's okay. We're good. Uh, we're a family. So the Perusia, the return of Christ. Yeah, whew, that's how I feel sometimes when I listen back to my sermons. Okay. Why did you say that? What were you thinking? Okay. This morning, we're going to ask a simple question, and that is, How should we be ready for the return of Christ? Very simple. How should we be ready? And the reason I'm asking this question is because this is the question that the text is answering. Here at Philippi, we do verse-by-verse expository Bible teaching, which means I don't come to the text with an idea. I come to the text, and I learn what the text says, and we teach what the text says. The text this morning answers a question, and it is the question, how should we be prepared for the return of Christ? Okay, So that's what we're going to explore. Let me get you back up to speed. If you guys were here last week, this is part two to what is called the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus' final teaching uh, about the end things to his disciples. We looked at the first half last week. You can go back and look at that on YouTube if you'd like or on our website. And this week, we're going to look at the second half of the Olivet Discourse. So here's what happened. Let me set the stage for the narrative. Jesus and his disciples were leaving the temple probably on Wednesday evening, after Jesus had just been lambasted with the Sanhedrin's best attempt to um, defuse uh, him and to, to, to uh, defeat him. So after a long day of ministry, they're walking out of the temple, and one of the disciples looks up, and he sees the grandeur of Herod the Great's temple, this massive structure, and he goes, Isn't this building impressive, Jesus? probably thinking in his mind that Jesus had plans and intentions for the temple. After all, the temple is at the center of the Judaism religion, the religion that God created. Um, Really, the temple was the centerpiece of their worship, so surely God has plans for this feature. And Jesus strikingly responds by saying, this temple will be destroyed imminently. (laughs) Every stone disassembled. And of course, we saw last week that happened in 70 A.D., Okay, the general Titus of Rome came in and basically burned and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. It happened. Now, this prophecy made the, the, the disciples curious about what was going to happen and when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. So, as they're walking up the Mount of Olives, four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, two sets of brothers, they pull Jesus aside and they say, hey, can you give us a little bit more? When are these things going to happen? And Matthew's gospel helped us understand that they asked really three questions. One, when will the temple be destroyed? Two, when will the end of the age be? And three, when are you going to return? When are you going to come back? And Jesus is answering these three questions, not necessarily in that order, but he's answering these three questions. So it helps us as biblical interpreters to understand what this passage is saying. It's responding to a question. The question is, when, Jesus, when are you coming back? When will the temple be destroyed? When will this age end? And how can we know? How can we know when it's going to come back? These are the questions that are being asked. So Jesus responds in chapter 13, verse 3, by first of all, preparing them to guard against distraction. He says, look, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be pestilence. There's going to be all of this stuff that's going to happen in world history. Don't be distracted. He says, these are simply pre-labor pains. Braxton Hicks, for those of you that have had children, okay, pre-labor pains. And then he goes on in verse 9 and 13. This is all review, by the way. Verses 9 and 13, he goes on to guard, help them guard against discouragement, He says, listen, you're going to be beat up. You're going to be kicked out of synagogues. You're going to be rejected by kings and rulers. You're going to stand trial. But you will be my witnesses. And your persecution will lead to opportunities to witness the gospel. The gospel will go out to the world. And, of course, we see so much of that happening in the book of Acts. We see it still happening today. So he helps them guard against discouragement, And then he says, after these things happen, there's going to be an event that will happen that will signal to that generation of the end tribulation that's to come. And that that event, we saw a, a dress rehearsal of it was the invasion of Jerusalem. But the final event, I believe, will be this great tribulation. And it will be kicked off by this man, this person referred to as the abomination of desolation. Such a rad metal band name. If you're looking for a metal band name, Abomination of Desolation. Okay, look no further than God's word. So this figure will come and he will be an abomination that will bring desolation. It's this figure plucked right out of the book of Daniel. If you want to study that more. And Jesus says when this figure emerges onto the scene, it's going to drive the world into some of the most severe or the most severe tribulation that it's ever seen, that it's ever had and ever will have. And I believe that we are looking forward to that moment. That moment has not happened yet. Uh, We talked last week about the fact that not all Christians agree on that, and that's okay. That's okay. We are dealing here with much meta stuff, things that aren't always entirely clear. But what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get his guys ready to tribulate, okay? He's trying to get his guys ready to go through trouble, He's trying to get his guys prepared for the fact that now that Jesus has come as Messiah doesn't mean that it's gonna be roses. We know that almost all of the disciples within 10 to 20 years were, uh, were murdered. So things were gonna be hard for them. Now, in the Olivet Discourse, we turn the corner to where Jesus now talks about the end and his return. He's now answering, he's going to answer the question, what will it look like when Jesus comes back? Now, let me give you an outline that's going to walk us through the passage. Jesus is going to give us six big ideas about his second coming. Six big ideas. If you want to write them down, here they are. One, his coming is going to be universal. Two, his coming is going to be effectual. Three, his coming is going to be unmistakable. Four, his coming is going to be unavoidable. Five, eternal and six, unpredictable. These are six points Jesus is going to make. Let's work our way through the text. We're starting in verse 24. First, Jesus is going to tell us that his coming is universal. <laughs> I just saw Trevor wrote me a little note in, in, uh, in my notes. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, he said I'm cute, so. I thought it was my wife at first. I'm like, oh, my wife. Oh, Trevor wrote that. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You, 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 you sufficiently distracted me. Okay. Um, okay, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, okay, um, this isn't rocket science. When is this? After the tribulation, okay, the sun, S-U-N, will be darkened, and the moon will not give its lights, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. By the way, this Son of Man who will discuss coming in clouds, don't picture um, this Mormon white Jesus riding on top of a cloud. Okay, just get rid of that. The clouds, the clouds refer to the glory of God. The glory of Jesus is immersed in the glory of God. That is what the cloud refers to. And if you want to know what this Jesus looks like, we'll see him in Revelation 1. And he's not pansy Jesus. This is world-dominant Jesus. Okay, this is Jesus that has a sword coming out of his mouth. So Jesus says the Son of Man will come, but right before he comes, we will see this cosmic collapse, this cosmic deconstruction. I just nerded out on this this week. This was so cool. That when Jesus comes, the cosmos will go dark. The sun and the moon will cease to give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and all power, celestial and terrestrial, will be overturned and defeated. Now, this is nothing new. If you know your Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets said this all along, Zechariah 14.6, if you want to write it down, it says, On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day or night. But at evening time there shall be light. The prophet Joel in Joel two ten says similarly, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He will execute his word. Uh, his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great, very awesome. And then Joel asks the question, Who can endure it? This is the coming of Christ. This is the coming and the consummation of all things, the reckoning of all things. This moment when Jesus steps out into the universe, takes the stage, the cosmos will literally deconstruct. Now, this is cool when you think about the book of Genesis and you think about the way the cosmos were created. Do you remember? What did it look like before the sun, S-U-N, was created? What did it look like before the earth took form and void? It was what? Formless and void and without light. See, what Jesus is going to do here in the future is he is going to disassemble or strip the house back to the studs and deconstruct so that he can regenesis his creation, you know, the only reason the universe, scientists, don't actually understand, the, the only reason the universe is working in perfect harmony is because Jesus is not let go yet. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all Jesus has to do, Colossians tells us, he is uh, creation was made by him, through him, for him. God made the universe by speaking. Jesus is the word. All he has to do is let go and the cosmos collapse. This is the dark moment before the light penetrates. This is the hopeless moment where it seems that creation itself has been de-assembled. The great letting go of God. The solar system's perfect alignment ceases. But in reality, what we know to be true as Christians is we know that God is simply renovating the universe. He's stripping it to the studs so that he can rebuild the new heavens and the new earth. And just like uh, Genesis 1-2 says that the spirit of God was hovering over the deep, in anticipation for the the sun, S-U-N. Well, the Holy Spirit in this moment is waiting, anticipating the arrival of the sun, S-O-N. The recreation of the, the universe, the new heavens and the new earth. God is gonna come and create a new, eternal, spiritual and immaterial dimension that you and I will live in forever if we're in Christ. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? The story arc of the cosmos You know, the Bible talks about creation as though it has feelings. (laughs) That's why I think uh, Lewis and and, and Tolkien got the idea of trees that can talk. It's it's like uh, very often creation is referred to as as sort of having its own persona. And Romans talks about the fact that creation is longing to be let go from this this presence of sin and wrath. that, That creation is longing for reconciliation. God subjected creation, which was innocent, to the fall. And creation will at one point be freed from that subjection. It's really good news. The gospel is a physical gospel. It's not just about God paying some immaterial sin debt so that your spiritual bank account can be freed. It's about God fixing and renovating and recreating the entire universe and the heavens. That's why in the prayer that we prayed, it says, Your uh, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's God's total, universal, complete, sovereign reign over all dimensions, spiritual and immaterial. That's the same thing. Spiritual and material. All things, he will have sovereign reign. So, number one, universal. That's what we learn. But there's more here, I believe, than just the galaxies and just the stars and the moon. I think this is also referring to spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders. It's referring to fallen angels that have been given dominion over this world for a period of time. All power will collapse. All who stand in the way of Christ will be flattened. It says in the Old Testament that Satan fell like a star. Here we see the falling of stars. This could be referring to spiritual and celestial fallen beings. Okay, now whether it's talking about the galaxies or whether it's talking about fallen angels, it doesn't really matter. The truth is the truth, and that's that nothing will stand in the way of Christ when he returns. Every path will be made straight. That's good news. No terrestrial or celestial power can stop the arrival of the Son of Man. Now, let's talk about this Son of Man. Who is that? What does that mean? Jesus, that was his favorite title for himself. Have you ever noticed that? And I think one of the reasons was because it was kind of an uninterpreted passage in the book of Daniel. They didn't really know what to do with this person called the Son of Man. We read about him in Daniel 7, if you want to look at that later. Uh, Jesus knew this was this obscure passage, but this passage referred to this human-like figure who would step onto the scene, and the Father, the Ancient of Days, would grant him all power and glory. It's this really strange, let's look at it really quick, in Daniel chapter 7. It says, I saw, Daniel said, I saw in the night vision... This is Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night a night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, does that sound familiar? Clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, God the Father, Yahweh, and was presented before him, and to him, to the Son of Man, was given, listen, dominion and glory and a kingdom that people, all peoples, in nations, and languages, should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So whoever this son of man is, it is who Jesus has chosen to identify himself as. Jesus wants his disciples to know who he is. And you're saying, well, did Jesus ever really say he was the son of man? Uh, yes. How about Mark chapter two, when Jesus healed the paralytic, Remember? He, he, he forgave the man's sin, and the, the Pharisees had a real issue with that. Who do you think you are that you can forgive sin, right? And what does Jesus respond? He says, uh, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that, listen, listen, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus identified himself as this figure in Daniel chapter 7, who has all authority, all dominion, all power granted to him by the Father. Make no mistake, Jesus knows he is the Son of Man. Isn't that cool? Isn't the Bible amazing? Isn't it interesting? Consequently, this is the same figure that we read about in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. And when it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Uh, And from the seven spirits, that's God the Father, God the Spirit, and here is God the Son before his throne. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from all our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be, what, glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds." The same figure of Revelation chapter one is the same figure that Jesus is anticipating, the son of man. It's the same figure we read about in Daniel chapter seven and the same figure we read about in Colossians one. And I'm sorry, he is not the brother of Lucifer. He is not a created being. He is God the son. And all authority and all power has been given to him and he has ascended to the right hand of the father where he is now, now ruling. And we wait for that rule to be fully consummated. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. It's good news. So this is what Jesus is telling these guys. The point is that Jesus is the point, the priority, and the preeminent punchline of all cosmic history. That's the point. That's the point. All things were created through him and for him, Paul says in Colossians 1. So, first we see the Son of Man's coming is universal. In other words, it's cosmic. It's all-encompassing. Number two, it's effectual. It's effectual. Look at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the to the ends of the heavens. What I want you to see here very simply is that God, the Son, Jesus, He comes for His. He comes for His, He comes for His own. He comes in the middle of this cosmic chaos, and he makes sure that his own are taken out. Now, Christians argue about, does this happen before the rapture, in the middle of the rapture, at the end of the rapture? Maybe there isn't a rapture. I don't know. But here's what I know. Jesus comes for his bride. He comes for his bride. We will meet him in the clouds. Every Orthodox Christian agrees on that reality. Okay? He comes for his bride bride, and we are his bride. The other day, my wife uh, accidentally left her backpack in her wallet at the library, okay? And, and I'll tell you what. First thing, as soon as the library was open the next day, my wife was there picking up her wallet and her backpack. Why? Because it's precious to her. Jesus left something behind when he went to the right end of the Father. It was you. It was you and I. It was the church. It was his bride, and we're precious to him. And when he comes, first things first, he draws his elect, and we meet him in the clouds. Isn't that good news? Such good news. You are his prized possession. So the Son of Man comes is universal, it's effectual. Number three, it's unmistakable. Jesus gives a parable. He says, from the fig tree, verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, theologians do what theologians do. They argue about what this might mean. And some people think that this is referring to Israel in uh, 1948 when they became a country. Some people see the fig tree as referring to Israel as, their, as a nation. Uh, and that's, that's totally fine. I, I personally, I think that's a bit of an overreach in the text. I think what it's saying is very simple. Jesus is taking an analogy in an agrarian society of a tree that when that tree was full of leaves, it was unmistakable what season it was. That's all. See, not every tree in the Middle East dropped its leaves. Some of the trees kept their leaves. Fig trees were unique. They'd lo- they lost their leaves, and they got them back at the end of spring. If a fig tree had leaves, it most certainly was summer. Summer was coming. And in an age that didn't have I calendar, uh, you know, these kinds of things were important. So Jesus has learned the lesson of the tree, He's not giving us a cipher to try to date when he's coming back. We don't know the day. He's making a very simple point about the fact that when Jesus comes, it will be unmistakable. The seasons will be obvious. I think that's all he's saying there. I don't want to overapply that. We won't be able to miss it. He'll be at the very gate, it says. By the way, just a little fun fact. The Turks, when they took over Jerusalem, 1600s, I believe it was, they took over Jerusalem, they sealed up the eastern gate because they were trying to uh, keep this Messiah figure from coming because it's, it's believed by the Jews that he's going to come through the eastern gate, right? I just thought that was hilarious when I was in Jerusalem, like looking at these little, this little gate that's sealed up by, by bricks. And the Turks would think they could stop the Messiah coming by sealing this gate, which is hilarious to me, right? Okay, he's coming to the gate, and the gate is not going to stop him. He's coming back. Number four, The coming of the Son of Man is unavoidable. Verse 30. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, that is one of the hardest verses in the whole Bible to interpret. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying, this generation that he's talking to, the disciples, all this stuff's going to happen before they die. That's what it sounds like it's saying. And remember last week we talked about preterism, that there are some Christians that see uh, these things as being fulfilled in in part already. Um, They love this verse because it sort of seems like some of this stuff should have already happened in the first century. Uh, Let me suggest to you, there's actually very good explanations as to what Jesus is saying here about this generation not passing away. If you have an ESV study Bible, there's five very good suggestions in there that you can research on your own. Let me give you the two that I think are most likely. First, I think generation could simply refer to those who are alive when these things start happening. And by these things, I mean the abomination of desolation. Meaning, when the Antichrist steps onto the scene, things are going to precipitate quickly. That generation will be around. I think that's a good explanation. But I think a better explanation, personally, uh, and again, this is just who knows, right? A better explanation is that generation doesn't refer to an age, uh, 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 not, not an age, doesn't refer to a particular period of time. It refers to a spirit of the age. It refers to, like Jesus used it when he said, to what will I compare this generation? In other words, what will I compare the mood of the day to? And if that's what he's saying, then I think the, the, the application is very simple, and that is no one is going to escape the coming of the Son of Man. This generation, I think, refers to all who have rebelled or rejected Christ over the last 2,000 years. All of them will be raised and deal with the coming of the Son of Man. And so that is why I believe here our fourth point is the coming, coming of the Son of Man is unavoidable. You're not getting out of it. You may be like, woo I'm going to die before the, the coming of Christ. Like, he, he's going to raise you. You're still going to see it. Okay? You still are going to have to stand before the Lord in, in, in judgment. Number five, the coming of the Son of Man is eternal. Look at verse 31. This is one of the coolest verses in the Bible, just so you know. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isn't that incredible? What kind of words does Jesus speak that they outlive creation itself? Almost kind of seems like he's God, doesn't it? I mean, what kind, of a, what kind of authoritative claim would you have to, what kind of power would you have to have to say, the things that I say are going to be around long after creation itself? It's almost like God the Father created through God the Son, and God the Son is the Word. It's almost like before there was matter and before there was the heavens, there was God's mind. And God's mind existed before anything material, anything created. And God's mind expressed that mind through words, and those words created matter. And when the matter is gone, the, the mind of God will still be. It's almost like God's mind and God's words exist outside of this little bubble we live in. Time, space, and matter. This little perverted, fallen, broken world that we all live in. It's almost like God's mind is the most real thing that we've ever known. And that this thing we're reading is the expression of God's mind. What do you think, should we take this thing seriously? This is the most real thing you own. This is the most real thing you've ever heard. This is ultimate reality, why? Because it's the expression of God's mind. Are you with me? Jesus is saying, hey, listen to my words because my words are more real than anything you're gonna deal with in your life. Number six, the coming of the Son of Man is unpredictable verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour. Now this is important especially to all those who have written books about trying to date when Jesus is coming back. I don't know, maybe they just this verse was left out of their bible, but but Jesus says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Can you guys say that with me? No one knows. So just stop trying to guess. We don't know, we know the seasons, but we don't know the day. In fact, <laughs> If anyone says, sorry, if anyone says that he's coming on a day, plan on it not coming that day. You can guarantee it. If somebody says it's going to happen that day, it won't happen that day. We don't know the day. That's Jesus' point. It's unpredictable. It's unpredictable. Listen to this. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven. And this one might surprise you. Not even the sun. Jesus doesn't know? Well, he certainly didn't know then. He may know now, but he certainly didn't know in that moment. Jesus is literally telling those guys, I don't even know when I'm going to return. It's up to the Father. Now maybe you're saying, if you're a critical thinker, how can Jesus be God if he doesn't know? It's a good question. The reason, actually, is because Jesus, when he came into this world, he added humanity to his divinity. I know that's confusing. 100% God, 100% man, welcome to theology. Okay, he added humanity to his divinity, and then he chose to limit certain attributes of his divinity, such as his omniscience, which means he knows everything, in order that he might live a very human life and become the perfect, Hebrew says, the perfect faith racer, faith example. Jesus had to trust the Father so that he becomes the example of what it looks like to trust the Father. He has limited his omniscience for a time so that he had to live as a human being. The point is, though, if Jesus doesn't know, we really don't know. Jesus is okay with trusting the Father. The kind of relationship he has with the Father is the kind of relationship he wants you to have with him, that of total trust, total surrender, total abandonment. So we do. We trust him. And then he goes on, verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Those two words, keep awake. See if you can count how many times they come up. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Did anybody count them? How many times? Four times. Four times. Four times. Here's a rule of biblical interpretation. When something is said over and over and over again, highlight it. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. What do you think the point Jesus is trying to get at here is? Stay awake. Stay awake. So that's our passage. Let me step back. Let me summarize. Here's what we know. We know that Jesus is far greater and far more powerful and far more cosmic than we can possibly imagine. And that's really good news if you're a Christian because you're on his side. Contrary to Western evangelicalism, he's not on your side. You're on his side. You're on his side. He's the king. And his return is going to be far more intense than we could possibly imagine. We know that the end is far more near than we probably could imagine. And fourthly and most importantly, we know that the call to stay awake is far more important than we can possibly imagine. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said it four times. So what I want to spend the rest of our time our next 10 minutes together with you is I want to figure out what does it mean to stay awake? What does Jesus mean by that? Because that's the emphasis of the text. Okay, when I'm preparing a sermon, I usually look for the one point. And then once I figure out the one point, then I say, what are the three points that help us do that? So how do we stay awake? That's the point. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to figure out. How do we stay awake? Revelation 16.5 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Does anyone want to be awake? Is anyone awake right now? (laughs) Does anyone want to be awake when Christ comes back? I certainly do. So let, let me do it this way. Let me give you three ways to fall asleep. Okay. Let me give you three ways to fall asleep. I'll put it this way. Let me give you three ways to be a drowsy, distracted, and disqualified gatekeeper, if that's what you want. Three ways to be a drowsy, distracted, and disqualified gatekeeper. Here they are. Number one, let fear drive you to the gate instead of faith and faithfulness. Let fear, so the parable is very simple, right? Let me break it down. Jesus is saying uh, that his return is like a master who who called his staff into the staff room and he said, look, I'm gonna be gone for a while. I'm not gonna tell you how long. And and he told his staff, uh, I need you guys to be faithful. I need you to keep running the business. I need to keep things going, keep the lights on. And I need the gatekeeper to be awake when I show up. Specific request, Okay, when the CEO pulls you in to the office and he says, hey, gatekeeper, that's your job. You better be awake when I get back. Okay? So that's the job. And then Jesus says at the end, he says, this applies to all of you. Because otherwise we'd go, well, that was, the disciple, that was the apostle's job. Or we'd go, oh, that's Sam's job. You know, as long as he's staying awake, I can snooze in the back of the car. Right? Isn't it great when your friends drive on trips and you're like, see in four hours, I'm going to fall asleep. Like, No, this is a call for every Christian to stay awake. So the first thing that I need you to see is if you want to fall asleep, let fear drive you to the gate instead of faith and faithfulness. You know, there's a very good reason Jesus didn't give us the day. You know why he didn't give us the day? Because if he gave us the day, we would do whatever we wanted and then we'd clean our room right before he showed up. I used to work for my dad when I was like 12 or 13, and, you know, you don't know how to work when you're 13, right? And, and, and my dad would give me a couple jobs to do at his shop, you know, sweep the dust, clean out the thing, whatever. Okay, and then my dad would leave sometimes to go to the hardware store. So I'd be like, I got 10 minutes to check my Facebook. Oh, Facebook wasn't a thing then. You know, check, check whatever. I got 10 minutes to, to go do something or just slack off or whatever. And I always kept my eye on the window or when the squeaky door would co- open, you know oh, dad's here, look busy, right? That would be the proclivity of Christians if we knew the day. And Jesus is trying to make this very simple point that you don't know the day because what Jesus wants of you, Christian, is faithfulness. He wants you to be faithful out of love and thankfulness to the gospel and the good news of what he's done for you. He doesn't want you watching the news so that you can try to cipher when Jesus is coming back so that you know when to go buy toilet paper which I would say probably now is the time if you're in case you're wanting to, because uh, look at what happened with COVID. Okay. Seriously, th- this, 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 this is what eschatology can sometimes do. With. There's, this, there's a, a very thick layer of paganism and Christianity that love eschatology. Worldly people that have no interest in doing the Great Commission, no interest in telling people about Jesus, no interest in preaching the gospel, but they're tuned in to Israel and what's going on in the Middle East, and they want to know prophecy updates. Why? Because they want to try to figure out When Jesus is coming, so they can get their act together. I'm not saying everybody into end times is like that, but I'm saying that that's one of the downsides of this, is we keep an eye on the gate, not because we're being faithful, not because we're excited about his return, but because we better look awake. This is a temptation. This is why Jesus didn't tell us when he was coming, because he wants us to be faithful. Faithful doing what? Well, not stockpiling bullets, not stockpiling generators and freeze-dried foods. Faithful doing what? Great Commission. Go make disciples. It's what Jesus told us to do. Spend yourself on the work of making disciples, teaching them all that Jesus taught. That's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. I'll put it this way good eschatology leads to baptisms, not bullets and bunkers. If your eschatology leads you to bullets and bunkers and not baptisms, you have bad eschatology. Jesus wanted these guys to be busy selling themselves to the kingdom of God, giving themselves away to the kingdom of God. He said, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I would rather be hungry without a basement full of food when Jesus comes back than having a bunch of guns and bullets and freeze-dried food. Guarantee you, you'll be happier if you spend your life looking at the horizon and doing the work of Christ. And I just, I'm not going to get all prediction here. If things get really bad, Christians are going to really have a hard decision on their hands. Do I share with the church when the food is short? Do I give myself away for this kingdom reality that is the church, taking care of others? Or do I hoard and hide? These guys, really, Jesus was calling these guys to be completely given over to mission. The second way to be a drowsy, distracted, disqualified gatekeeper Number two is to assume you will stay awake accidentally. Just assume that you're going to stay awake accidentally. Jesus is emphatic in his imperative because he knows our proclivity to spiritual apathy. I can't say that enough. We are, uh, some of us, I'm optimistic, and I tend to be optimistic about myself sometimes. I'll get up. I'll get up and read my Bible. You know, I will. I'll get, I'll, I, I will, I'll get in the word, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll fast at some point, you know, I, I will be more mature in the future, surely, you know. Uh, no, you won't. No, you won't. Listen to this. Everything in you, in your, uh, your original um, old model sort of uh, firmware is wired to world living, Everything in you wants to go according to the course of this world. That's what Ephesians calls it. Ephesians 2, Paul says there's this course. It's called the course of this world. And and everything in you just wants to go. And when I think of a course, I think of the lazy lagoon at the the water slides. You ever go on that thing? You just like jump on and you just float. Okay, that's everything in you wants to do that. The reason Jesus chose the metaphor of staying awake is because staying awake is hard, isn't it? Have you ever decided when you were a kid that you and your friends were going to stay awake all night long? How long did you make it? usually like 4 a.m. and you're like, "Eh." okay, this idea of staying awake, it means intentionality. If you're just assuming you're going to stay awake, you're not. If you're just assuming you're going to grow spiritually, you're not. If you're just assuming you're going to grow in the word and in faith and in prayer and dependence and in holiness and in godliness, you're not. You're not going to grow by accident. You have to work to stay awake you need to press in. you got to make sure you get up in the Word because the world is knocking right at your door first thing in the morning. The flesh is knocking right at your door first thing in the morning. Staying awake takes intentionality. Do you remember the disciples in the garden? They couldn't stay awake. Jesus is like, hey, can you guys stay awake and pray with me? I guarantee Jesus was thinking about that. You know, I mean, that, that was going to happen the next day, but, but I guarantee you, like, he, when, when he said, you guys can't stay awake, he was literally thinking, I just told you yesterday four times to stay awake and you're snoozing in the garden. It's not easy to stay awake. And so just to put a finer point on this, I would encourage you guys to think about, are you assuming that spiritual apathy is not really gonna be a thing for you? Are you assuming that you're growing by accident? You're not. I see it all the time. I see guys that are really, really passionate about Jesus in their 30s, and in their 60s, they've cheated on their wife, they got a pornography addiction, they let alcohol take over, they walk away from the Lord. How does that happen? It happens because you don't grow by accident. You grow intentionally, and you can grow out of love for Jesus. Okay, you can. Watch over your soul. This is what the New Testament says this over and over. Watch over your soul. Listen to what Paul says. First Corinthians, the great apostle Paul, he says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let me tell you, that's a weighty passage for me as a pastor. You know how many pastors sit in the pulpit and tell people to, to watch their soul, and they don't? They don't watch their soul. It could happen to every single one of us. It's not one big decision, it's little decisions. It's choosing to take our eyes off the gospel, it's choosing to not let Jesus be the satisfying delight of our heart over and over again until we grow out of love with Christ. We have to get up in the morning and wake up and give Him our heart and give Him our time. It's not legalism, it's called sanctification, it's the Christian life. We have to grow. It takes work. It takes intentionality. The path is broad that leads to destruction. Isn't that terrifying? Narrow is the way, and the way is Jesus, and it's being interacting with him every day. Third way. The third way is this, and this is important. Maybe write this one down. If you want to be a drowsy, distracted, and disqualified gatekeeper, take his world more seriously than his word. Take his world more seriously than his word. Many of us live our whole life orienting our life and our decisions and our demeanors based off of the world that we live in. You know, If I make this decision, I'll get this outcome. You go to college, you work hard, because you know this world has shown you that if you work hard, you'll be blessed in this world, right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's just the, that's the metrics of the matrix of this world, right? You know, that's that's orienting your decisions off of what you know to be true in this world. Here's the thing about being a Christian. When you're a Christian, God's word sometimes tells you to do something that God's world, which is, by the way, deformed and twisted and perverted, that God's world would tell you is a bad idea. Giving money away seems like a bad idea giving yourself away, moving to a country where you could get malaria and get so sick that you'll never be right again. You know, maybe, uh, for instance, walking into a place and telling someone about Jesus, knowing that they're going to reject you, calling somebody out on sin, even though you know that they're not actually going to listen to you. seems like a bad idea by worldly metrics. But being a Christian is realizing that Jesus said his word will outlive this world, which means that his word is more real than this world. Do you understand that this is more real than everything you experience every day? And so, what does that mean as Christians? It means we know God's word. And God's word is going to call us to do things that seem like terrible ideas in this world. But they're not. They're not terrible ideas. Heaven and earth will pass away, but His words will supersede this creation, supersede this world. His word is ultimate reality. You know, I thought about this. You know the magi, these pagan Babylonian guys? How did they know to come and greet Jesus when he arrived? Because they had let this one passage out of Daniel rule their world. They let the word of God consume their world, and it led them to this point where they were able to be the receivers of Christ the king. Sometimes we're called to do counterintuitive things. How do you think the Christians felt in the first century they were getting eaten by lions? They felt probably like they were maybe making a mistake except for this one very simple reality, that they knew that God's word was more real than God's world. We don't live in God's true world, we live in God's fallen world. And that fallen world will tell you that certain things are a good idea. You know, maybe it's a better idea to do it the world's way, it's not. It's not, it never is. So my question to you is, what do you orbit? What's your center of gravity? What makes you make your decisions? What is your mind soaked and saturated in? What, what helps you think a certain way? Is it, is it Fox News? Is it Tucker Carlson? Is it NBC? Is it some podcast? Is it Joe Rogan? You know, who, who is it? Who, who is the person that informs you? And how much weight does that thing carry compared to God's word? The only way you will endure in this world is if you are more tuned into God's word than God's world. And I would encourage you to take an account of that this week. Christians are Christians because they think like Jesus. And thinking like Jesus doesn't, become, doesn't happen by accident. It's a work of the Spirit, and it comes through reading his word. Let me just end with this. Romans, Paul says <clears throat> in Romans 13, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk promptly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I don't want to go apocalyptic. I just want to tell you, regardless of whether we are in uh, birth pains or pre-birth pains, stuff's going to get hard, and I would encourage you to be Christians that know the word and that know why you're here And don't get caught into paranoia and fear and wars and rumors of wars. I want you to remember, Jesus gave us Mark 13 not so we could find a cipher and figure out when he comes back. He gave us Mark 13 so we could be Christians that suffer well. Christians that go through the flames and don't burn up. Christians that can go through tribulation because we know that God has ordained these things, that he's providential, that he's good, that he's coming back, and that we would be Christians that keep our eyes on the horizon for the return of our king. So every time you watch a movie where the hero comes and saves, I want you to remember, oh, that's cool, that's cute. The real hero is still coming. He's yet to come. And all that Hollywood can do is just just kind of give little ideas. What do you think, why do you think the Marvel universe is so big right now? How many superhero movies can they make? We know we need a superhero. We need to be saved. We need Jesus to come back on the clouds. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand, would you guys? Let's stand to our feet. Jesus, help us. Help us. Help us, Lord. We're prone to spiritual apathy. We're prone to fall asleep. We're prone to be zombies on our smartphones and on social media. We're prone, Lord, to let, let lust and pride and selfishness and gluttony and all of these things just rule us when, Jesus, you died to give us freedom from those things. Lord, would the gospel have complete authority over our life? We are free. We are adopted. We are made new. We are regenerated. We are valuable. We are chosen. We are called. We are sent. And we have hope. Lord, may these truths be the center of our gravity. May these truths be the binding agent of our lives. May these truths be the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning. Lord, we need a generation of Christians that are ready for tribulation, that are ready to make disciples in the midst of maybe even economic collapse or whatever happens, whatever. We need Christians ready to live the Great Commission. Jesus, can we be that? Can this church be that? Can we be those that are not distracted by this world, that stay awake that watch the gate out of faithfulness and not out of fear? Lord, would you do a work in this church? Could we be those that live with the lights on in a dark world, that show truth and love? Jesus, we believe that you're coming back, and we can't wait to come quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Hope you have a great Father's Day. Oh, death, where is your sting?